This is Tesserae. I'm Steve Cartwright. I'm Bob Stevenson. And we invite you to join us as we attempt to explore the integrated Christian walk in light of the ways it has been dismantled. Well, today's episode kicks off a short series exploring the American evangelical response to racism. Now, the American evangelical church has, if we're being honest, a rocky history. And it's helpful to trace the lines of our failures uh, and successes so that we can learn how to move forward more effectively towards uh, lives of integrity, towards wholeness. Now, one of the most important pieces in my own journey of understanding the racialized landscape of our society is understanding why we are here in this moment. How did we get here? So in this and the next episode, we're going to be talking about some big questions about how we got here. Now, all of us are born into the middle of a conversation, you could say, um, in terms of our history, in terms of what's going on in our world. It's on us to figure out the context of that conversation, why we're having it at all. And, you know, our families and social groups tell us a little bit of that story. They provide us with a bit of that context, but it's only part of the story, typically. Now, white folks in the United States uh, don't always do a lot of context setting with regards to racism. We do context setting with everything else in terms of our history, but not so much with racism. We tend to have a somewhat abridged uh, history. And so it's tempting to pop into this conversation, pop into history, look around and conclude that the things that things are the way they are for any number of reasons. So in these episodes, we're going to get into context. Today, we're going to explore the rise of the black church, its irony, its role, its legacy, because its very existence reveals a lot about where we are today. Now, I'm really excited about this conversation because my experience with the black church was pretty much non-existent uh, through high school, and then it was just minimal. Um, the black church was kind of a foreign entity. I grew up in a white evangelical church and was surrounded mostly by white culture. I went to a pretty conservative Bible college, which was great. But, uh, you know, in my historical theology class, when I learned about black theology, it was black liberation theology. And so I left uh, college kind of thinking, well, black theology is dangerous. And, you know, pastors that I know express frustration that there even is a black church. Questions like, well, you know, they're welcome to join us. Why can't they just uh, join our churches? Why do they have to have their own churches? I've heard these kind of conversations, and so it's worth asking, uh, because I think a lot of folks wrestle with this, a lot of white folks wrestle with this, um, what's the deal? How did we get here? Why is there a black church, and what is its significance? So Steve, since you're our resident expert, uh, why is there a black church? How did we get here, and why is it so important? If I'm a resident expert, we might be in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> so actually, we're going to have the opportunity to talk so much about racism in America, so much so that I actually thought it might be helpful to begin off country in South Africa. Not only might this help us grasp the far reaching nature of racism, but it might also help us see that this is not merely an American sin or an American problem. Uh, so a few years ago, I was studying apartheid in South Africa in detail for the first time. I spent time reading literature from the Boer trekkers, Dutch travelers who were eventually who would eventually settle in South Africa. 
So in reading a lot of the source material, I learned that this trek, this journey is propelled by a biblical parallel, a divine calling that the Dutch feel uh, where they are the new Israel marching into Canaan, a strange land led forward by God's promise. And just like the Israelites of the Old Testament being led out of Egypt and into the promised land, these trekkers have divine permission, even purpose for claiming a land that they, well, have no claim to. So much of these original writings were influenced by a Calvinistic perspective, building off of the idea of being the chosen or elect. So here's an early lesson that came to young Steve when I was studying this uh, from South Africa. Uh, Biblical interpretation and its subsequent theology can be retrofitted for my own convenience. After all, who can argue with me? Who can critique me if I say that God told me to do whatever it is that I'm doing? It's the ultimate trump card. So The Dutch make their way into South Africa in the mid 1600s and a few Dutch immigrant immigrant. So the Dutch make their way into South Africa in the mid 1600s and Dutch immigration commences shortly after. And these settlers eventually become known as Afrikaners. So the term apartheid, it actually means apart from in English. And eventually in 1948, apartheid is this gradual system of segregation that discriminated against people of color in general and black South African natives specifically. So this system will regulate and remove opportunities for voting for black people. Uh, It will dictate where they can live in their own country. It will ban interracial marriages and relationships. It will take away uh, rights from so many people and it will legalize Uh, massive human rights violations for the next 40 plus years. Now, don't mistake this for simply political, because this is where the point of me bringing this up is. The Dutch Reformed Church or the DRC is in support of apartheid for nearly all of its existence, making it even more dangerous, more painfully ironic, more incriminating for Christ followers. Its theology and its practice are aligned with this partial system that overtly caters to and exalts one group of people over another. If you can insulate your way of thinking, your way of life with enough faulty biblical interpretation, you can apparently make yourself impervious to critique to any prophetic voice, or in this case, the World Council of Churches, which eventually expels the DRC, countless pastors, churches, and denominations in the world, even the Pope himself. Okay, so the the lesson here is that the Dutch really screwed this up uh, and are terrible racists. I think Trevor Noah calls it perfect racism or something like they (laughs) they just did it the best. So, um, so, you know, it's tempting to be like, wow, they they were horrible people. But what does that have to do with, you know, the American experience and, and the black church in the United States? Well, for one thing, I think it means that we should be able to learn from others. Uh, And if you bring it back to the U.S., the black church experience does not begin with slavery. And that point cannot be made enough. And we know that Christianity is not a white man's religion, that it predates the United States uh, by a a long shot. But with that being said, slavery was an interesting marker uh, for the black church being able to be formed in the U.S. because it was speaking to that discrepancy between what you believed about God and his people and how you treated them and what you would do if something was simply more convenient. It was convenient to believe in a a narrative of racial difference, if you will. Um, It was convenient to to enslave, to hold humans um, as property instead and still call yourselves Christians in the midst of it. That, that's the key point in even bringing up apartheid is not that this is just a political system. This is a sort of amoral, 
uh, uh, group of people. Uh, these people are claiming to be Christians uh, quite often and yet have this huge discrepancy. So by the time the black church is really crystallizing and coming in uh, after slavery is abolished and after churches are gathering in these ways, like a lot of them still are led. They might be a primarily black congregation, but they're still led by white ministers. And at this time, you're going to have seminaries be constructed and and you can't even have uh, black people attending these seminaries. So what's considered pretty crucial in terms of seminary training and preparing ministers uh, for the congregations they will face, that's not even an option uh, for, for so many who will end up helping to lead the church. So there's these massive discrepancies between what we claim and what we actually end up doing uh, that is, hu- is a huge part of the black church experience. Do you think it's fair to say that had racism uh, not been so prevalent in the United States from the early days and uh, slavery and institution um, that the black church as we know it would exist? I don't think that the need for it would be the same. Uh, Definitely. I think that from an experience standpoint, I think that we'll get to this a little bit later, but experience really speaks to so much and informs so much about the black church. Uh, And if that experience was altered um, to not include some of the obvious markers of pain and incongruency with Christianity proper, uh, then the legacy of the black church would be quite different at least. And maybe its existence just wouldn't be necessary. We wouldn't have this massive difference between uh, people based on the color of their skin. So we might not need a black church. We would just be in church. So almost coming, so coming back to the, uh, the kind of theme of this podcast of uh, Tesserae and the, um, the, the unity and integrity that we're pursuing um, to, to a degree. So the, the, the black church has its unique history. And we're going to talk in just a second about um, the, the really beautiful bits of it, the things that make it so necessary uh, for the American church. Um, but its existence is also a testimony of the fragmentation that our country, that the American church uh, really participated in, right? That the fact that it was separated off, that it was put, uh, Christians were pushed out, marginalized um, uh, through, through our history. Even if we were to go back to slavery for a moment, can you imagine sort of hearing this, uh, this idea about who Christ is and still only being able to attend a church service from a balcony um, or having to wait outside for it. Um, this It's so important to remark that these experiences going on in a, these experiences going on in America are not rooted again in some group or some country that doesn't claim uh, Christ, um, that doesn't claim to be Christ followers. Uh, so the black church ends up as it's crystallizing, living out. Sometimes its theology is not very different. Uh, its piety looks very similar, but its practice is what is a lot different. Um, and that's where a few of these distinctives kind of come out. So one of those distinctives, I would say experience is key, like in the black church. Uh, and so sometimes I think there's that fear that, uh, having these experiences or talking about diversity is replacing the gospel. Um, when I think in reality, uh, it's really just showing how the gospel touches all of our experiences. It shows the power of the gospel in that regardless of the depths of your experience, regardless of how you've been mistreated, not only uh, 
by just the the, the world, but also by believers in the world, um, by people who claim to be the same, following the same Christ as you. Uh, the fact that the gospel is still present in the midst of all that is a miracle, and uh, and it speaks to the importance of experience. I think it also it also tethers us a lot to Christ Himself. I think that a lot of uh, the parallels that we find in suffering and and being able to go through hardships as a good soldier are rooted in the fact that we know that Christ went through and suffered for us, that he felt and uh, was tempted just like we were, just like we have been, um, that he is not out of touch. You know, we do not have a high priest, right? We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Like mm-hmm. that is, that is so key to the Christian experience. Um, and it's key to the black church experience because so much of it has been marked um, by suffering and inequality. Um, I think uh, another distinctive of the black church is one that you'll hear a lot. I would hear increasingly, but I think it's always worth uh, bringing up. And that is being a prophetic voice. Um, okay. Hold on a second, because like that gets bandied about a lot. Lots of people want to be <laughs> prophetic, right? Yeah. Um, so what do you mean by a prophetic voice? So I, I think uh, what was originally coined by the Quakers is uh, speaking truth to power uh, is um, is what a prophetic voice does. Uh, and it does it from within. If we think about the Old Testament prophets, uh, <laughs> they weren't saying, so guys, uh, I've been good, but you guys have been bad. So even though I'm also an Israelite, uh, you guys are going to suffer for this and I'm not going to suffer. It is that we are going to go through this, right? That uh, that because of our sin uh, we are going to go into captivity or we are going to go into exile. And uh, it's they're usually not treated. They're usually not very popular figures. Um, they're usually on the run. <laughs> they're usually in danger. People don't really listen to them, generally speaking. I mean, because who wants to hear what we did wrong? Um, who wants to hear the bad news of going into captivity or uh, or losing the freedom or the kingdom that we had? So I think that prophetic voice is often one that is not popular. And it is one uh, that is uniquely placed to hold an institution, a nation, uh, a people, uh, the church accountable um, that challenges it to, again, hold up uh, its actions to its ideals and call out the discrepancies when they see them. That, to me, is the a real key to being a prophetic voice. I also think that being that prophetic voice means that it's inevitably even more internal um, for the individual who speaks prophetically uh, into institutions or into power. I think it behooves them to be able to receive uh, challenge themselves or to be able to speak to themselves when they could be out of line or to examine themselves to make sure that they're also living up to their actions and not uh, showing a discrepancy um, between the two. And obviously we see the prophetic voice um, I mean, manifesting throughout history, but perhaps some of the most familiar cases are going to be um, the black leadership of the civil rights movement, the black church leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think of the big hitters, of course, like Martin Luther King Jr., et cetera, but it's very much uh, speaking to uh, speaking the truth to governing authorities and powers that say like, this isn't okay. This isn't what it means to be just. 
Uh, I think we also see is that these are often ministers. These are often men of God who are speaking into these. These are women of God who are speaking into what they clearly see <laughs> is, uh, is, is a fault, is a, a weak spot um, in, in who they are supposed to be. Um, you know, I think that uh, Dr. King certainly gets credit, but there were there were so many. And I think what's quite interesting is that in the church doesn't do what they're supposed to do. When the church does not serve as that prophetic voice, it's not that silence occurs, it's that someone else will take up their voice and they'll use it in a way that isn't redeemed by Christ. Um, a great example, I think, of like a contemporary of Dr. King, is, who's often villainized and misunderstood is Malcolm X, um, speaking to the reality of what it meant to be black in America. Uh, but it was minus, his message was uh, minus the redemptive nature of Christianity, minus the redemptive nature of Jesus, because uh, in his mind, this was not something that Christians were doing. You had cr people claiming to be Christians who were still in support of state-sanctioned racism. Um, so I think that's also something to remember is that being a prophetic voice is a, a an office or a seat that if not occupied uh, by the believer will be filled by someone else just on moral grounds. And, uh, and that's not enough. Now has the, as we look at the black church, uh, experience, is it fair to say that this prophetic voice, this, uh, speaking truth to power, this seeking to, um, bring about change in society is consistent throughout, um, the black church experience? I, I don't think so. I think that uh, just like the the broader church in America, you have uh, you have different schools of thought, you have uh, different emphasis, and you have different ways to get to the same goal. Um, so while I think that I think I would feel comfortable saying in the black and white conversation, more black people per capita uh, would say. Uh, that racism is a problem and racism still exists and that it needs to be addressed. But the way in which it has it has been addressed throughout history has been throughout our sh relatively short history as a nation has been very different. Um, there is a fundamentalist arm um, to the black church, just as there is in a more evangelical arm, um, evangelical in the sense of uh, what happens on earth matters. Um, you know, and so this fundamentalist perspective um, is not unique to the black church, but I think it is a little different because I think that it it is seen through the lens of despair um, quite often. And so uh, don't don't look for things to get so much better on earth. Don't look to get rich. Don't look to stop being discriminated against because of the color of your skin. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. And that can be reflected not only in black hymnals, but also uh uh, but also in our sermons, also in so much of how the Pentecostal church had the black Pentecostal church experience has existed um, is to this fervency and this uh, eyes on eternity in the midst of temporal pain is is, is very real. Um, and then you do have a sense where we still want to pursue that holiness. We still want to pursue and are looking forward to eternity when everything will be perfected. But we realize that we still have work to do here, that that we were put on this earth. Um, and and while physically on earth, we still have a purpose um, that the Lord Jesus was only on earth physically for 33 years. Uh, but that 
his work didn't finish when he physically died. It's not any less valuable. His ministry was no less valuable just because it was temporal. So there's different ways that this has been done. There was certainly during the civil rights movement, uh, you know, Dr. King is kind of, at least on the surface, seems to be universally loved. We know that wasn't the case uh, and accused of a great many things during his time, uh, not not loved by everyone. Uh, but he generally is on the right side of history. And if you were with him, then that was seen as what needed to happen. Uh, but not even every black church, every black minister agreed with him and felt that we needed a more internal community-based response and that things were going to take time uh, and that we couldn't rush the system or count on the government to bail us out of some of these situations. It's it's sad to say, but really my uh, knowledge of the black church has, has really come about just recently. I mean, it was through... Um, uh, African-American church history with Charlie Dates, which you and I took together a couple of years ago that um, I, I realized how much of American church history uh, I didn't know. You know, it's funny because I actually took a class called American church history. And um, I, 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 I know we hit some of this stuff in broad, broad strokes, but um, reading and, and learning from the black church experience uh, from black pastors, black theologians, um, what you've described here has given me such a, a deeper appreciation um, for Christ's church because I'm realizing how much I have to learn uh, and how my own experience can sometimes be um, so limited. So it's been really helpful, um, e- even encouraging me to push others outside of, um, you know, just white theologians or white authors. Um, uh, to push myself out of those boxes uh, that I wouldn't have had if I didn't really dive into uh, the, the, the black church experience that's so different than my own. I remember that class. Uh, you were one of the few non-black uh, attendees in that course, which that cannot be said at TEDs very often. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I remember how how interesting it was and how at home I felt even on the first day, not just because I knew most of the people in the room, but because there was this subject matter that we knew we weren't going to get elsewhere on campus. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was powerful. And it kind of it kind of speaks to and it was it was great to have you and others there um, that weren't black and that didn't necessarily have the, some of the same experiences that uh, others of us shared. Um, and it kind of brings the the idea of advocacy to mind. Um, when you begin to advocate for yourself and when others begin to advocate for you, I think that it ultimately makes you a better advocate for others. Um, and I think this could be demonstrated even going back to some of those grad classes where uh, I wrestled with and processed with a lot of people what it meant to be a person of color in seminary. Um, one of the few black seminarians on that campus. Uh, and after I was able to do that and felt that others heard me and cared for me, then I wanted to in turn care for and be and be uh, aware of the experiences that my um, that my sisters were experiencing in seminary. I wanted to to know how they were processing intense discussions on women in ministry um, or how they felt about being the only woman in almost all of their courses. You know, um, those things became more important for me and opened my eyes to some of the blind spots I had had before. So, you know, we've got this podcast called Tesserae and we're talking about wholeness and 
uh, kind of an integrated life, um, looking at the big picture and how how the gospel touches everything. Um, and looking back at the black church is really helpful for understanding a bit of how we got here. There's so much to learn um, from it, but thinking about this idea of integrity and, and wholeness, is it, I mean, man, like, should we still have a black church and a white church? I mean, should, should there really, are, are, are we just uh, continuing the fragmentation that, um, you know, we, we, we talked about early on or uh, like, what does it mean to move forward? One of the ways that I think we move forward is through a pretty central Christian concept known as repentance. Um, I think that we understand this on an individual level, um, which makes sense, right? Like uh, when we sin individually, we need to, we need to repent and we're a pretty individualist society. Uh, so it makes sense. But that act of recognizing that you're doing something wrong and turning away from that. So stopping in your tracks um, and, and, and changing direction and moving forward forgiven. That is a much more difficult concept to grasp and to put into practice communally, it seems. When suddenly it's not just the individual that needs to own their unfinished business or own the sin that they've committed. But when you are, as a society, answering for what those beside you or before you committed, um, when you are suddenly uh, realizing that you are tethered together as believers um, and kind of bouncing back to apartheid that is a huge cap on that that apartheid reality right is uh, in the 80s the uh, dutch reformed church um, issuing an apology uh, and asking for forgiveness and repenting of their role in supporting um, the apartheid system uh, biblically theologically socially um, and then we see it modeled uh through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's effort put forth and led by Bishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa to not gloss over and simply forget uh, the atrocities that were committed in South Africa um, through the sin of racism, uh, but to understand it, to seek forgiveness, to seek healing, and knowing that that healing wouldn't occur without owning up to what had been done wrong and who had done it. So... That seems to be one way to move forward is collectively repenting. And I know we've released statements and such before and apologized to different groups of people. I don't know if it just means a more robust version of that, but it doesn't seem to be enough of a trickle effect, a trickle down effect um, for us to pursue unity after the statement's done. I mean, thinking about this whole process in terms of individuals, right? Interpersonal relationships, the the, the reconciliation process requires two parties to move toward one another to make repair in a relationship where a breach uh, has been committed so that you can uh, return to unity um, and wholeness in relationship. And, and that makes sense. And I think the term racial reconciliation is pretty common. I think that there are those, and I, I certainly understand this perspective, who would feel it's more accurate to call it conciliation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. With With the idea being that 
if you were to point back to a time where you mentioned two parties were uh, like they need to be reconciled, well, when can we go back and say that things were actually good? Uh, at what point can we go back and say, well, before slavery, before Jim Crow, before massive civil rights violations, uh, before all of these things that helped bring us to where we are, things were actually really good with us, you know? And we can do that when we think about reconciling us to Christ because we're, we think about before sin. We think about design and intention, right? Um, but when the, the race conversation, there's it's hard sometimes to look back and look towards a moment of peace in the midst of war. Right, absolutely. And that's where framing the historical piece is really important here. And unfortunately, we'll, and we'll talk about this later, um, but, you know, the, the, it's, it, unfortunately, I think a lot of folks do think about racism purely through an individualistic lens, right? Me and another person, when we do need to think about that historical component. And when we talk about churches, uh, about the church pursuing wholeness, you can't do that without looking at that entire history of, of fracture. Yeah, that's good. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Um, thanks so much for joining us uh, in episode two. It was wonderful to have you along. Uh, these really are conversations that are better had with friends. And so we would love to hear from you. We're on social media, on Facebook at Tesseray Podcast and on Twitter at uh, Tesseray Podcast. And uh, shoot us a note. Let us know what you uh, agreed with, what you didn't agree with, what you found confusing or illuminating. Uh, we certainly hope to hear from you soon. I'm Steve. That was Bob. And this is Tesserai. We'll see you next time.